This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was Tuesday, May 17, 2011. Daoud Ibrahim and his family were transforming his luxurious home in Karachi, Pakistan into a palatial wedding venue. Daoud's only son, Moin, was the family's last child to get married, and the affair was going to be the who's who of the region's elite. Nearly 550 miles away in southern Mumbai, Dawood's younger brother, Iqbal Kaskar, was leaving his home with his bodyguard. As they walked out the front gate, bullets started flying. Iqbal's bodyguard grabbed his pistol to fire back, but the gun jammed. The bodyguard was shot in the head. Then the attackers ran, leaving Iqbal unharmed. When Dawood got word of the attack, his celebration was put on hold. The crime lord had a long list of enemies, but there was only one who would dare to do something like this, to attack his family, and on the day of his son's wedding. That foe was Chota Rajan, a former high-ranking lieutenant in Dawood's crime syndicate. His once-trusted ally had become an arch-rival thirsty for blood. Welcome to Kingpins, a ParCast original. I'm Kate Leonard. And I'm Howell Hargett. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. 
You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Kingpins in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This is our final episode on Dawood Ibrahim, the billionaire kingpin. Last week, we looked at Dawood's rise from his childhood in India to his rise as a billionaire crime boss. This week, we'll explore how Dawood's multinational underground syndicate, D Company, became entangled in international terrorism. Throughout the 1980s, Daoud Ibrahim expanded his small-time smuggling ring into a criminal enterprise that included extortion, contract killing, arms smuggling, drug trading, and money laundering. It was all based in Bombay, now known as Mumbai, the Indian city where Daoud had lived since childhood. Even after he fled to Dubai to escape the law in his home country, Daoud kept running his criminal empire from abroad. And in 1992, his operations expanded into terrorism. Dawood's smuggling routes were attractive to Pakistan's Inter-Services Intelligence, the country's top spy agency. The ISI's chief goal was to destabilize India, which was a long-standing enemy of Pakistan. Dawood's underground pipeline could help them transport weapons and ammunition across the border for their covert missions. In the early 1990s, the ISI approached Daoud to secure his help. Reportedly, a pair of Pakistani smugglers made the initial contact with the crime lord, but he resisted the offer. But Daoud's resolve began to break down as the price of gold crashed, hurting revenue for his smuggling business. If he wanted to recoup those losses, he would have to add something new to their shipping channels, and in the end, what did it matter whether he was smuggling arms for run-of-the-mill criminals or international terrorists? Access to the ISI's own shipping routes along the Indian Ocean would also help him fill the revenue gap and expand his other smuggling businesses. Financially, the idea had no downsides. But Daoud just couldn't bring himself to do it turning against his own homeland was a step too far. While the economic pressure weakened his resolve, it seems it was a series of events back in India that finally pushed Daoud over the edge. On Sunday, December 6, 1992, a group of Hindu extremists gathered at the Babri Masjid Mosque in northern India. Even though the historic Islamic house of worship had been at this site for centuries, some in the Hindu community contended that the mosque was built on the birthplace of the Hindu god Rama. A crowd of over 150,000 descended on the Babri Masjid that morning, calling for Hindu temples to be erected on the land instead. Shortly after noon, 
the rioters swarmed the three domes of the hallowed mosque and tore it down themselves. Within a few hours, the building lay in crumbles. The demolition of the nearly 500-year-old mosque sparked riots between the Muslims and Hindus throughout India. The wave of violent clashes left roughly 2,000 people dead across the country, most of whom were Muslim. The destruction of the mosque and the riots left Daoud outraged. He was Muslim, and so were many of his gang's members. Some of the men saw their homes destroyed by the rioting Hindus. But what stung the most was the lack of response by the government. Law enforcement barely lifted a finger to stop the violence. In some cases, they even openly colluded with the rioters. India was not going to protect its Muslims. So Daoud wasn't going to protect India. In late December 1992, members of D Company met in Dubai, where Daoud had been living for the past few years. Daoud still wasn't sold on working with the ISI, but trusted Lieutenant Tiger Memon was rallying for revenge. After the anti-Muslim riots and the property they'd all lost in the chaos, it was time for D Company to even the score, not against the Hindus, but against all of India. By mid-January 1993, at a late-night meeting in Dubai, Daoud finally agreed. He and Tiger orchestrated a plan that went far beyond what the ISI had asked of them. The first step was to recruit the foot soldiers. They targeted Muslim youth from India who were angered by the riots and by the police corruption that led to hundreds of deaths and injuries. Who was this country really for? 19 young men signed on, and Dawood's associates flew them to Dubai, where they learned the details of the plan. Then they were sent on to Pakistan, where the ISI trained them on explosives and firearms. Once the training was complete, they went back to India to prepare. Daoud set the date for April, so the attack would coincide with Shiv Jayanti, a Hindu holiday. They wanted to inflict maximum terror during a time of joy, and the holidays would mean large gatherings of people, particularly among the Hindu community. The early months of 1993 were spent surveying over a dozen locations to carry out the coordinated attacks. The plan called for a series of bombings targeting politicians, government officials, and Hindus throughout Bombay, India's commercial capital. And the city Daoud grew up in. By February, the arms and explosives were arriving on India's west coast, smuggled through Daoud's underground routes. At least 10 customs and police officers were recruited to help with the smuggling. Everything was going according to plan. That is, until March 9, 1993, when one of the new recruits, Ghul Noor Mohammed Sheikh, was picked up by the police. Gulu, as he was called, had a record of minor looting and petty crimes, and that was presumably all the police were expecting to deal with. But Gulu, for some reason, decided to confess to the entire international terror plot. His recruitment by gangsters in Dubai, his training in Pakistan, and the series of bombings they'd planned throughout the city. The police didn't believe him. 
Gulu was a young petty criminal from the slums. The idea that he was working with Pakistani intelligence seemed ridiculous. They completely disregarded everything he confessed. But the news of Gulu's arrest and admission made its way back to Dubai. Concerned that the police would get their hands on the other attackers and thwart the plan, Dawood adjusted their plot. His lieutenant Tiger flew to India and told the men on the ground they weren't going to wait until April. The attacks were happening now. Coming up, Daoud and his co-conspirators launched the Bombay bombings of 1993. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now back to the story. It was Friday. March 12, 1993, in Bombay. At 1.30 p.m., a car bomb exploded in the basement of the Bombay Stock Exchange. The 28-story office building was thoroughly damaged and 50 people were left dead. Over the next two hours or so, 11 more explosions rocked the city. Another car bomb detonated at the Corporation Bank a jeep exploded at the Century Bazaar, killing nearly 90 people. Bombs were left in suitcases inside three five-star hotels, the Hotel Sea Rock, Hotel Juhu Centaur, and Hotel Airport Centaur. Scooters packed with explosives went off in the densely packed shopping hubs such as Kata Bazaar and Zaveri Bazaar. More buildings went up in smoke, the Plaza Cinema Dadar, the Air India Building, the regional passport office. Hand grenades were tossed at Sahar International Airport and at Fisherman's Colony in the Mahim Causeway, where many Hindus lived. After the dust settled, 257 people were dead and more than 700 were injured. It was the first act of homegrown terrorism in Bombay, and it remains the largest coordinated terror attack on Indian soil in terms of the numbers of lives lost. In just over two hours, Dawood Ibrahim forever altered the fabric of his city. Investigations started immediately. Rakesh Maria, the lead detective from the Bombay police, assembled a team of over 150 officials for the task. They started piecing the evidence together when they discovered an unattended van near Worley's Siemens factory, one of the blast sites. The vehicle was full of hand grenades and automatic weapons. 
Rakesh and his team traced the van to Daoud's fellow mastermind, Tiger Memon. The investigators tracked down a room owned by Tiger's family, which appeared to be where the bombs were assembled before the attacks. They also found a key on the refrigerator that unlocked a scooter used as part of the bombings. After combing through 79 cities across India, the police detained about 180 suspects. Two of them became useful informants. Given the pseudonyms Mohammed Umar Khatlab and Badsha Khan, the men had been recruited by D Company and trained in Pakistan, and they revealed details of the entire plot from beginning to end. Law enforcement turned their focus to Daoud, but he was nowhere to be found. He was watching the investigation from the safety of Dubai, but his act of terrorism had destroyed whatever legacy he had in India. Before the blasts, the crime boss who'd risen from the slums was something of a folk hero among the Bombay community. All that changed when it was revealed that he had organized the attacks that decimated the city. The discontent rippled through D Company as well. One of Daoud's closest associates, Chota Rajan, who was Hindu, hadn't been directly involved in the attacks. When he saw the destruction the boss had caused in their home country, he couldn't stand to be complicit any longer. He left D Company and took most of the gang's Hindu leadership with him. The religious divide weakened Daoud's gang, just as it had weakened India. Rajan built his own crime syndicate, challenging his former boss's hold on smuggling, extortion, and drug trafficking and law enforcement was still focusing all their energy on D Company. Including Daoud and Tiger, a total of 123 men and women were accused of involvement in the bombings, and many of them still hadn't been found. The trial of the long list of accused started in the spring of 1995. The prosecution presented over 600 witnesses in the case, it took around five years just to wrap up all the testimony, which gave law enforcement plenty of time to round up Daoud and his other associates that were living abroad. Since the United Arab Emirates had an extradition treaty with India, Daoud shifted his home base from Dubai to Pakistan. He knew his ties to the ISI would protect him. In Pakistan, Daoud made his home in the seaside suburb of Clifton, in the posh area of Karachi, Pakistan. The sprawling estate was dubbed the White House, clearly a reference to the United States Capitol. The comparison was earned. Daoud's White House was its own hub of power and prestige. It boasted a waterfall, temperature-controlled swimming pool, opulent Swarovski crystal, tennis courts, and a high-tech gym. It was guarded by Pakistani Rangers, the country's paramilitary group, and monitored at all times by Daoud's allies at the ISI. The extended trial back in India didn't slow down Daoud's criminal activities, including his dealings in the Bollywood film industry. For years, the crime boss had financed some of Bollywood's biggest movies and extorted money from prominent producers and directors. 
Once Daoud was identified as a suspect in the Bombay blasts, many in Bollywood wanted to distance themselves from him and his terrorist organization. But D Company continued to find players in the film industry to manipulate and extort. In 1995, Daoud was allegedly romantically involved with beauty pageant contestant Anita Ayub. He wanted her to be cast in a Bollywood film directed by Javed Siddiqui. When Javed refused to comply, he allegedly was shot dead by a D Company member. Roughly two years later, a top Bollywood producer, Gulshan Kumar, suffered a similar fate. This dispute started when Abu Salem, a D Company member based in Dubai, allegedly called Gulshan and demanded that he cough up 10 crore rupees, about 1.4 million US dollars. Gulshan reluctantly paid part of the sum. Abu called him again, asking for the second installment, but Gulshan refused to pay any more. In August 1997, Gulshan stepped out of a temple in Mumbai, clad in white silk. He was only a few paces away from his car when he felt the cold metal against his head. The gunman fired, but the bullet only grazed Gulshan's head. A crowd was drawn to the sound. While the shooters fired into the air to disperse the mob, the injured Gulshan tried to scramble away from his assailants. He lurched toward the door of the nearest house, but two gunmen pumped 16 bullets into him at point-blank range and made their escape. The woman in the house quickly slammed the door when she saw the bloody Gulshan on the other side. But miraculously, he still wasn't dead. He crawled all the way to the door of the next house down. There, too, the door was slammed in his face. He crawled a few more feet before death finally set in. Daoud used this kind of violence to keep a grip on his power as the Bombay bombings trial continued. By 2003, the United States and the United Nations joined India in declaring him a global terrorist. This label meant that all UN member nations were required to impose a travel ban on Daoud. They also set a $25 million reward for his capture. But despite his wanted status, Dawood continued to live in luxury in Pakistan. Pakistani journalist Ghulam Husnain reported, he wears designer clothes, drives top-of-the-line Mercedes and luxurious four-wheel drives, sports a half-a-million rupee Patek Philippe wristwatch, and showers money on starlets and prostitutes. By September 2006, over a decade had passed since the bombings, and the court finally began issuing its judgments. A total of 100 men and women were found guilty for participating in the serial bombings, including famed Bollywood actor Sanjay Dutt. Three of Tiger's brothers and his sister-in-law were found guilty of aiding or abetting acts of terror. But Daoud, Tiger, and a few of their associates didn't even stand trial because the court wasn't able to bring them back to India. As the convictions mounted, Daoud was officially named 
India's most wanted man. Coming up, Daoud's growing list of enemies takes aim at the crime boss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Now back to the story. In 1993, Dawood Ibrahim and his co-conspirators launched a series of attacks that forever changed India. More than a decade later, many of the people involved in the bombings were finally facing justice. But Dawood and his key allies were still in Pakistan, eluding law enforcement. Despite the mountain of evidence against him, including statements from multiple participants in the plot, Daoud continues to deny his involvement in the Bombay bombings to this day. He's been quoted as saying, I am not an angel nor an avatar. Even then, I repeat that I am not involved in the case. I also believe that the Bombay blast case has been solved. But the courts of law and of public opinion have a different idea about Dawood's guilt. Dawood made many enemies by masterminding the bombings, including Chota Rajan, his former confidant and right-hand man. Rajan had splintered from D Company after the attacks, and he used the growing hatred for Dawood to build a reputation for his own gang. Rajan made repeated public announcements of his intention to get vengeance against Daoud for his act of terrorism. He threatened to brutally murder everyone accused of engineering the bombings. And he made good on his promise. Seven of the men involved were killed by Rajan's hitmen. The former D Company lieutenant also targeted Daoud's links to Pakistani intelligence. He developed a reputation as a patriotic criminal by cooperating with the police and providing information about D Company's dealings. Thanks to his tips, Indian law enforcement was getting closer to reeling in their most wanted man. In November 2006, 10 members of Daoud's syndicate were arrested by the Mumbai police. Law enforcement had tracked them down in the United Arab Emirates and issued an extradition order to bring them back to India. Daoud himself, of course, was still in Pakistan, where he couldn't be extradited. Now that he was relying on their protection, Daoud's links to terrorist groups like the ISI only grew stronger. 
His smuggling and drug trafficking were used to underwrite terror attacks for other extremist groups, ranging from the Taliban to Al-Qaeda. He shared smuggling routes with Osama bin Laden and allegedly visited the terrorist leader in Afghanistan. Daoud's business also linked him with Lashkar-e-Taiba, a militant Islamist group based in Pakistan. D Company funded the group's activities, recruited new members for their training camps, and provided them with international criminal contacts. Together, Daoud and Lashkar-e-Taiba unleashed another devastating attack on Mumbai. In November 2008, a boat provided by Daoud set sail from Pakistan. The 10 Pakistani men on board then hijacked an Indian fishing boat before docking in Mumbai, where they rampaged through the docks with grenades and automatic weapons in hand and hijacked several vehicles, including a police van. They killed nearly 60 people at a railway station. Over the course of the four days, the men stormed several buildings and left 164 people dead across Mumbai. Nine of the 10 gunmen were killed by the end of the attacks on November 29th. The lone survivor was later executed by hanging. D Company had financed the entire attack and provided the weapons. The newspaper India Today reported that it was Daoud personally who handled logistics for the attacks. For his active role in violent campaigns such as these, the FBI and Forbes magazine named Daoud number three on the world's 10 most wanted fugitives list in 2011. And despite all the evidence that Daoud is living in Pakistan, the Pakistani government still adamantly denies that he lives there. It's believed that he's still being protected because of his usefulness in Pakistan's struggle against India. According to a dossier prepared by the Indian government in August 2015, Daoud has nine different residences in Pakistan. He holds three Pakistani passports as well as passports from India, Dubai, and the Commonwealth of Dominica in the Caribbean. In 2015, Forbes magazine estimated Daoud's assets at a net worth of over six and a half billion U.S. dollars, making him one of the richest kingpins of all time. Only the notorious Pablo Escobar is valued higher, at an estimated net worth of $9 billion in 1989. Across all of its multinational criminal enterprises, D Company generates approximately $2 billion in annual revenue. Daoud's business interests span more than 25 countries spread across Europe, Africa, and South Asia. It's estimated that D Company's membership has grown to 5,000 across the globe. The group's ventures now include smuggling diamonds out of South Africa, working with opium growers in Afghanistan, and trafficking narcotics to Western Europe. D Company conceals its criminal activities through a garment business, petroleum products, and construction partnerships. But the International Crime Syndicate still focuses mostly on Daoud's home country. Some reports say that about 40% of Daoud's earnings still come from India, with one of his main businesses being the production of fake Indian currency notes. 
The 63-year-old Daoud maintains his kingpin status despite his growing list of foes and a spate of health concerns. In April 2016, reports started to circulate that Daoud had suffered life-threatening gangrene in his legs. The infection seems to have been caused by Daoud's high blood pressure and long-standing diabetes. Reports of his health issues led to speculation as to who would take over his business affairs after his death. Daoud had anticipated that his only son, Moin, would take over the crime syndicate, but Moin declined. He told his father that he was going to become a religious scholar instead. Daoud's brother, Anis, was considered as a candidate. But it's said that Anis' aggressive and temperamental personality has sparked feuds within the organization. His heir apparent still isn't clear, but it may be a while before he's ready to retire. Daoud is still at large today, living in luxury in Pakistan. He hasn't set foot on Indian soil for over three decades. Daoud remains at the top of India's most wanted list, but at this point, it's possible the billion-dollar crime lord will live and die without ever being caught. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all your favorite ParCast originals, like Kingpins, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Joel Stein. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Travis Clark. Kingpins was written by Chandra Thomas and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett. <laughs>